Every story begins somewhere. And every author gets to choose that somewhere. You've read stories that start at the beginning and build that story from nothing. Stories that start at the end and work backwards to fill in the pieces. But many stories start somewhere in the middle and move out in both directions. The story of Joseph spans 13 chapters of the book of Genesis in the Bible. Joseph's story is widely recognized as an early masterpiece of the narrative genre. Few stories following a single character exist within ancient world literature of this length or cohesive narrative arc. And so it has become a story beloved by many, studied, translated, and interpreted by scholars around the globe. Retold and enacted from stages on Broadway to Midwestern high school auditoriums. Colored on photocopied pages in Sunday school classes across the land. The story seemingly always starts with Joseph entering the scene at the tender age of 17 with a very fancy coat from his dad. Genesis, chapter 37. But a lot of water can pass under a 17-year-old bridge. Can you imagine that family Christmas postcard? The card that has one kid in a fantastical dream coat and 12 in their drab woolen shepherding cloaks? What exactly are we missing? How is it that we got here? Where did Joseph come from? Clearly, there's a backstory. I'm Sarah Stone, and this is Dream Big, a podcast by The Gathering. Genesis, the name of this book where we find Joseph's story, is a book about beginnings. The word Genesis literally means origin or beginning. So if we wanted to, we could walk all the way back to chapter 1. We'd get the origin of the universe, the beginning of life on earth, the birth of the human family through Adam and Eve. But that's a different podcast for a different time. Let's instead fast forward to get into Joseph's story. Joseph falls into a very particular family from whom the rest of the Jewish and Christian traditions descend. And trust me on this, if you think your family is dysfunctional, you've got another thing coming. Joseph's great-grandparents were Abraham and Sarah. We meet them back in chapter 11. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace their heritage to Abraham. Abraham ended up with more than one lineage, thanks to Sarah's most generous offer of her own handmaiden when she herself couldn't conceive. It was a real hardship for Abraham, obligated to have dutiful sex with multiple women in order to produce an heir. Those were difficult days. And while I'm sure Sarah's heart was in the right place to begin with, turns out feelings are feelings. Jealousy is jealousy, 
Comparison is the thief of joy, and Sarah was undoubtedly feeling that weight. What seemed like a good idea at the time soon drove Sarah in a dark place, and she eventually banished the handmaiden Hagar and her son Ishmael. So we're off to a messy start, but Sarah did in fact also have her own son, Isaac, who is the grandfather to Joseph. Isaac grows up and marries Rebecca, a woman his dad's servant went and picked out for him. You know, arranged marriages get mixed reviews. I guess a lot rides on how well your parents know you, or in this case, how well your parent's servant knows you. But if the classic children's Bible story books and Sunday school lessons are to be believed, Isaac and Rebecca were the dream couple in the scheme of biblical romances. You would think they were the Beyonce and Jay-Z, the Chip and Joanna, the Michelle and Barack of the Old Testament couples. Seems like they won the arranged marriage lottery. And so they managed to do what many headline Bible couples do. They have some babies. Twins. Esau is the first out, and the Bible says he's red and hairy. This oddly specific detail seems weird, but we'll get back to it. Esau's twin wasn't far behind, though. Which we know from another oddly specific detail. His hand was grasping Esau's heel as he came into the world. A little foreshadowing there, perhaps? But here he is, twin brother Jacob. They grow up, I assume peacefully, but the story points out that Isaac favored Esau, the firstborn. But Jacob, well, Jacob was a mama's boy. As the boys get older, the question of inheritance moves to the forefront of everyone's minds. Not so much an inheritance of stuff. These were nomadic people. They didn't have much stuff. But an inheritance of a blessing, an acknowledgement of which son would be passing down the family line, the name, the future. Isaac isn't going to live forever. So Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau all know he'll hand down this blessing soon. For their whole lives, the twins knew there was no question which of them would receive this blessing. It was Esau. It was his birthright. What a difference a few seconds can make. But Jacob isn't going to go down without a fight. We saw that coming from the moment he entered the world. He first convinces a particularly hungry Esau to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup one afternoon. We said Esau was the oldest, never said he was the smartest. Then Jacob and Rebekah devise a foolproof plan to trick Isaac, who is blind by this point into giving Jacob Esau's birthright instead. The plan is this. Put some goat skin on Jacob's hands and arms so Dad will think it's his favorite son, whose voice is completely different, but whose arms apparently feel like a goat. How hairy was this guy anyway? Have you ever felt a goat? There's nothing about a goat that feels remotely like a human arm. What could possibly go wrong with this plan? Turns out, nothing. It worked like a charm. Isaac gave Jacob the blessing that was meant for Esau, and the blessing was this. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you.
that middle part, that part about the nations bowing down to him and being lord over his brothers, that's not the last time we'll hear that. But in the meantime, Jacob took off, as you do when you steal your brother's blessing. In the midst of his wanderings throughout Canaan, a few things happened. He got married, twice, and God changed his name. Let's start with that second part. Jacob had a few encounters with God during this time of finding himself in his future. And on more than one occasion, God ended their conversations by changing Jacob's name to something kind of important. A name you might have heard before. Israel. Yeah, Joseph's dad was no slouch. Was he a jerk? Sure, especially to his brother and father. But he was also a pretty big deal. God still saw fit to give him the name that would become the identity of God's own people. From this ancient story all the way down to today. Israel. But like I said, some other things happened along the way before he became Israel. Jacob headed out of town to find his uncle Laban, his mom's brother. He found Laban, but he also found Laban's daughter Rachel. One encounter with her at the well where they watered their sheep and Jacob was in love. Unfortunately, in those days, there was some different protocol. So he brokered a deal with his uncle to work for him for seven years, and then he'd get to marry Rachel. Chapter 29 says those seven years felt like no more than a few days because he loved Rachel so much. Which is maybe a little weird because practically speaking, Rachel could have been like 10 at the time explaining the delay her dad put down on Jacob. But we'll table that for now. At the end of seven years, Jacob is so excited to finally get to marry Rachel. But Laban has something else in mind. Laban has another daughter, an older one, Leah, who had not yet been married. He sees an opportunity to take care of his family in a fairly shady way. Um, Now keep in mind that it's dark. Very dark at night, with nothing but firelight and starlight to illuminate the evening. And also, since women were given away as property when marriages were arranged for men, women wore veils on their wedding night so their husband couldn't complain if they didn't like the looks of them. They weren't to be seen by their husband until he was actually, well, a husband. As an editorial note, this is perhaps the most compelling argument for why wedding veils today should be discontinued immediately and banned entirely from existence. You can imagine the anticipation Jacob was feeling. He had waited seven years. Seven years. And what was sure to have been a long-awaited and steamy wedding night, Jacob rolls over in the tent the next morning to find himself married to Leah, the older sister, not Rachel. Jacob was furious. He confronts Laban and demands to know why he has done this. Laban, as if he hasn't had seven years to share this little tidbit, nonchalantly informs Jacob that simply isn't the way we do things around here. Who would marry off their younger daughter before the older? Fine, Jacob says. Let me marry Rachel too. Deal, says Laban. Just work for me seven more years. All of that happens, Jacob ends up married to two sisters, which Hebrew law points out is a terrible idea and forbids it. He loves one more than the other, 
and I bet you can guess which one. Oh, I forgot to mention that each daughter also came with a female servant. And if Jacob learned anything from his grandparents, it was that those women were part of a package deal. So Jacob ends up with 10 kids in a fairly short amount of time. Having kids quickly is a whole lot easier when you're working with more than one oven. Leah gives birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel has trouble getting pregnant, so she gives Jacob her servant, Bilhah, who has two kids, Dan and Naphtali. Leah, not to be outdone, gives Jacob her servant, Zilpah, who has two sons, Gad and Asher. Then Leah herself cranks out three more, Isaacar and Zebulun, and the only daughter mentioned in the whole lot, Dinah. All of these hordes of boys running around, and Rachel, Jacob's favorite, is stuck with the work of raising them, but not the honor of bearing them. But at last, in due time, Rachel did in fact conceive and have a son. It's not that hard to imagine, perhaps, the magnitude of joy for two people with a long and deep love for one another who are finally surprised by what they thought they would never have. There are some narratives, no matter how old, that ring true in every age. Despite having 11 other children already, you can guess that this child was going to be special for Rachel and Jacob both. And that child was quite special. That baby they named Joseph, firstborn son of the favorite wife, 11th son of a man bearing the name Israel, a heritage of strained fraternal relationships and complicated family dynamics, half-brothers from four different women, all living under the same tent. He wasn't the last child born to Jacob, though. Rachel had one more, Benjamin, the baby of the family, and bringing him into the world cost Rachel her life. As the rest of the story unfolds, Jacob and all of his children will set the stage for the birth of a nation which bears his name, Israel. But two of those children will hold his affection and attention more than the others as they bear the imprint of Rachel, the love of his life. As Jacob himself was never one for respecting the birth order, it didn't matter to him with his own sons either. It was not Reuben, the firstborn, who held his high favor. It was Joseph. And so it was Joseph who one day got a gift from his father, a gift like no other, an extravagant, noticeable, unusual, distinctive, favorite son-identifier multicolored coat, which he wore when he was 17. And here's where things start to get complicated. That's next week. Mm -hmm.